If you have your Bibles open this morning, if you could open them up to Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you did not bring your Bible this morning for whatever reason, please grab one that's in the back of that pew right in front of you. You need to have that out. You need to be looking with me, verses 10 through 14. And this is how you be like a Berean and you take what I'm saying and you go back to the Word and you... You listen to what God is saying, maybe even over and above what I'm going to be telling you this morning. So have your Bibles out if you would, and um, it's a little difficult because I preach out of the English Standard Version. Those are the Pew Bibles. Your version is often likely different, but that's okay, and I think God's Word can speak clearly regardless. Here's what I want you to think of at the beginning, and let's get as much seriousness to this as you possibly can. I think if you are a Christian brother and a sister, you're going to agree with this. You have enemies, and they are very, very powerful, and they want to destroy your faith. You're in a war, I'm in a war. And you've got a world that you live in, that I live in, that seeks to try to press you into its mold, and its mold never ever looks like God. And you have flesh, not organic matter, you have flesh, that spiritual residue that the gospel is killing, that part, that energy, that impulse that says, I want what I want more than I want what God wants. You've got that flesh that is waging war and temptation against you and I all the time. And you've got a spiritual enemy who knows exactly how to to bait our flesh. He's impulsing, he's energizing this world. And they all work together. They're all allies, they're all in league, and they've got one goal for the Christian. They can't take you out of God's hand. Believe me, you are secure in your salvation because the Spirit of God has sealed you to the day of redemption. They cannot take you out of God's hand. They cannot rip salvation out of you. But they can begin to erode your faith. They can begin to mire you in the world so that you're no use to the kingdom of God. And they can begin to make you doubt, make you despair that God will ever be able to make something of your life. That's the power of these enemies. And they're very, very good. So as we're working through the book of Nehemiah, and we we are uncovering these strategies that our enemy uses and the responses that God's people have to learn, you need to be writing these down, or at least you need to be saying, okay, that's the one this week that I'm going to really focus on. Because I'm going to ask you in a few minutes, do you know where your vulnerabilities are? Do you know where your enemy is likely to be coming at you? Don't assume you know. Can I make a really wild statement that I hope will grab hold of your attention? Listen, our enemies know us better than we know ourselves. I hope you believe that. 
We get into Nehemiah chapter 4, and we've been looking at these strategies. Remember, we've seen three of them. We've seen that the enemy is going to bring, our enemy is going to bring criticism. They're going to mock us. They're going to ridicule us. They're going to jeer us. They're going to try to diminish and demean our faith, demean our outlook in Christ. And if that doesn't work to get you to stop building the wall, remember, all they're trying to do is to get you to stop building, stop serving, stop getting your life to Christ, get off the altar, don't be a servant, live your life your way. They're going to try to get you to stop building the kingdom of God. And if criticism doesn't work, then the battle escalates and it escalates to conspiracy. And all of a sudden, people around you, all of a sudden, temptations are mounting all of a sudden all these forces are just making it more and more difficult for you to be serious about building spiritual walls in your own heart or in the kingdom of god in the church you know you start you know you got your life and it's a mess you're trying to get your life rebuilt you're trying to walk with christ and all of a sudden it seems like everybody's coming out of the woodwork to oppose what you're trying to do And if conspiracy doesn't stop you, then he's going to escalate it even further. And all of a sudden, this fog, this mist of confusion can blow into your mind and you wonder, why is my my life more difficult now when I'm walking with Christ than it ever was before? Is it really worth it? Everybody else around me believes that Christianity is a charade. I go to college and I've got professors that are demeaning and proving they think the the invalidity of the scriptures. And my pastor is telling me that they're infallible, that they are inspired, inerrant, without error in the original manuscripts. I don't know what to believe anymore. That confusion is going to settle in and all of a sudden your faith begins to wobble a little bit. But if that doesn't work, or even if it's starting to work marginally, here comes more strategies, and here's where we pick up this story this morning. Verse 10, we're going to see discouragement. Now pay attention to the first two words, and we're going to see that in a minute. In Judah, that's notable. How tempting it is to just skip that, right, and get right to the juicy part. Every word is important in the Word of God. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. So now you can begin to hear clearly. This is the fourth strategy so far in Nehemiah chapter 4. This is what the enemy is going to try to do. Begin to try to sow discouragement. And it's an attack of the mind. Discouragement is an attack of the mind. It's a fog that is so subtle that you don't even know you're in it until you can no longer see your way clear. And it burrows into your mind, and once that discouragement is there... Now listen, have you ever been discouraged? Because if you've been discouraged, and it leads to despair, then you know how it can burrow into your mind and make you want to just quit. I remember one time when I was mountain biking up in Lehighton, up in the Jim Thorpe area. I was going up these hills, these mountain trails, and it seemed like this was going on forever. And I am flagging, I am not able to get my breath in. And all of a sudden I see up ahead just a little bit further where the path levels out. And I said, I can make that. And I pedaled and I made it. 
only to get to where it leveled out and find that it continues to go up in just a short ways further and further and further. And sadly, that was it. I quit. That's discouragement. It's an attack of the mind and it burrows in there and it's one of the strategies, but it's made up of a few parts and I want to extrapolate that. Let's, let's extract them from the text. And here's the first one, fatigue. We're talking physical fatigue. And you might be thinking, well, I thought I was in church. I thought the pastor talks about spiritual things. Listen, our bodies are inextricably linked with our souls and our hearts. The outer person is linked to the inner person. And if you're in pain, chronic pain, listen, you know what it's like to begin giving up. You know what it's like to be discouraged. In Judah, it was said, look at your text. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. You know what that word failing means in the original language, Hebrew, it means to stagger or stumble under a load. The strength of those who bear the burdens is stumbling. They were physically exhausted. And now listen, they were exhausted doing the work of God. They're not exhausted because they're just staying up late in the bars. They're exhausted because they are burdened with building the wall. You know, the Greek people had a warning about physical fatigue. It says this, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. So immediately, if you want to begin to uncover the strategy of discouragement, just start looking inward. Do I rest? Do I work hard and do I rest? Or am I going and going and going and am I telling people, my wife, my husband, my children, friends... All the time, I am tired. You know, one minister, his name was Robert Murray McShane. Listen, he did more at 29 years old than I'm sure that I will ever do in my lifetime. He was phenomenally gifted. He wrote this as he was dying at age 29. 29, he's dying. He says this, God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride. Alas, I have killed the horse, and now I cannot deliver the message. There's nothing noble about working yourself to death. You work hard, you rest. Because Christian service has to be marked by output and input. This is what Paul is saying. So we do not lose heart. He's saying we do not become discouraged. Though our outer self is wasting away. He's saying that not only because every second ticks closer to his biological death. He's saying this because he's expending massive amounts of energy for Christ. And he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You've got to rest. And when you rest, you renew. It's called the Sabbath. Well, I thought the Sabbath went out. When the New Testament came, there's a sabbatical rest, a regular rhythm that our bodies need, that our souls need. And we are renewed daily when we honor it. So you do not lose heart. You do not become discouraged. But listen, this is Judah. We're in Judah and they're discouraged. This fog of despair is settling in. And the reason, the first reason is because physically they're expended. 
But it goes on. Look at the second reason as we uncover discouragement. And this might be you. Likely, this is a lot of us. And it's called nearsightedness. Their eyes were on the rubble. Here's what they said. There is too much rubble. Now, if your life has ever been a mess, or if you love somebody whose life is in ruin, and you begin to wade into their lives, or you begin to begin rebuilding your own life, and all of a sudden the mountain of rubble that is in your way begins to grab your eyes, and you become discouraged. That's what's happening in Judah. Not only are they physically exhausted, there's so much debris, there is so much rubble, even though they're halfway through the wall, verse 6, they don't see it as halfway done, they see it as twice as much to go. And that's easy to do when you've got a lot of rubble in your life. Haven't you ever woken up one day or maybe gone to bed that night? Now listen, look at me because I can't compete with beautiful babies. Never. And it's all your fault too. It's not because I'm a boring preacher. That's part of it. Haven't you ever seen all the sin in your life? God ever open up your eyes? And shown you a little more clearly how far from his holiness you really are. That's rubble. That's debris. If you can imagine, step inside the Jews' feet for a moment. They've been, their city has been ruined in a wasteland for 70 years. Babylon destroyed them 70 years before Nehemiah begins to rebuild. And when Babylon would destroy a city, they didn't just rid the city of the inhabitants. They pulled the walls down. Jerusalem is filled with hills and ravines and gullies and gulches. It's all up on hilly terrain. And when they pulled the walls down, Nehemiah couldn't even ride around the wall. The rubble was so bad. Haven't you ever stepped into somebody's life, which was a mess, and not even know where to help begin rebuilding? The debris is choking even the ability to navigate in that person's life. There are no landscapers in Jerusalem. There's no maintenance crew ridding the city of weeds. Dust is blowing in. Blocks of stone are settling into the dirt. And this is what confronts Nehemiah. You've got to pull the debris out of the dirt to get it back onto the wall. And the Jews are working they're working themselves into exhaustion, but all they see is a mess. All they see is rubble. You know, I have somebody in our church that I love dearly. There's not a week that goes by when I don't get one of two types of emails. One, my life's a mess. I cannot defeat sin. I think I'm going to stop coming to church. That's the low point. That's the valley. Or I get, God is really freeing me. This is amazing how I'm feeling. God is doing a work in me. Every week they go back and forth. And I would confess to you, sometimes I'm hearing the low point and going, there's so much rubble. And yet God has to re-energize my faith and renew my inner man so that I can hold out confidence to this person. God can do this work. And let's do it together. Do you have anybody in your life like that? I don't know if they're ever going to rebuild. 
That's nearsightedness. In the fog of the enemy, they forgot what Paul later taught. We walk by faith, not by sight. Can you remember that? Listen, look at that again. We walk by faith, not by sight. But when our eyes get on the rubble, our faith will begin to diminish. We've got to look through the rubble and we've got to get back to the promises. You might be thinking, my marriage is too far gone. It's never going to be restored. Listen, I hear that. I hear marriages that settle. It's never going to get better. This is my lot in life. I had a parent yesterday tell me, this is never going to change what's happening in our child. It'll never change. I am resigned to this the rest of my life. He's looking at the rubble. He's forgotten the promise. The battle with sin is too powerful. I'm never going to defeat it. That is rubble vision that is nearsighted. This area has always been terrible in the east end of the valley. Our little church is never going to make a difference. That's when your eyes get on the rubble and off the promise. My unbelieving parents are so old, they're never going to turn to Christ. This is rubble language. And you can see the fog of discouragement beginning to blow into their minds. Listen, your enemy wants your eyes on the debris, not on the promises of God. But then there's a third part of this discouragement. Not only physical fatigue, not only nearsightedness, but now it gets even worse as doubting. Look what they're saying. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Not, they're not saying, I'm not sure if we're going to rebuild it. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do it. They're saying definitively, by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. But look at verse 6, just a few verses before this. The people had a mind to work. Now you can see what discouragement does as it drapes across their minds like a fog. Now they, can't, they don't even have a mind to work. They have a mind of futility. There's never, this is never going to work. And they lost sight of how far they had come in the strength of the Lord. Now you remember what I said in verse 10. Everybody look at your text if you would. Remember those first two words? that we're so tempted to gloss over. Can I remind you, this is the tribe of Judah. A little bit later, in verse 16, you'll see it referred to the house of Judah. That's all of the Jews. That's all of the southern portion of Israel. But this, in verse 10, is the tribe of Judah. Do you know much about the tribe of Judah? The tribe of Judah was the tribe out of which King David was born. The tribe of Judah was the tribe out of which Jesus Christ would come. And that's notable. Notice what Revelation 5, 5 says behind me. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion, that's Jesus, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. There's both of them. David came from Judah. Jesus Christ came from Judah. They had David's blood running through their veins and their blood's going to be running through the veins of Jesus Christ. It's been, and they were prophesied. The tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It was prophesied that the Messiah, the one who would be freeing the world from sin, would come from the tribe of Judah. Now you know why the enemies are going after Judah. This is why it's in Judah that the enemies are attacking. It's why it's in the tribe of Judah that this fog of discouragement is 
coming against them and they're losing sight of their inheritance. They're losing sight of their prophetic messianic promise. Now here's what's frightening. Now listen, you need to know this. The tribe of Judah carried the promise of the Messiah. Church, we do too. It is us who carries the gospel to the world. It is us who recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the one that was prophesied all through Scripture. We're carrying the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Our, our, the name of Jesus is on us. It's why you're called a Christian, which means a little Christ. We're the ones carrying Christ to the world. Who do you think Satan's going to attack? Don't think discouragement is just some little thing that you're innocently struggling with. This is an attack of the enemy. And when you lose hope that this world could ever be different, and when you lose hope that this church could ever make a difference, and when you lose hope that your life could ever defeat sin and that your marriage could ever be healed or that your purpose in life could ever find a job that could fulfill it, when you lose that hope, then the enemy's strategy is working. Do you know why Judah was struggling so badly? Can you flip your pages to chapter 6, verse 17? I love to hear the sound of pages flipping in the sermon. You've got to have your Bibles with you. Look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Do you remember who Tobiah is? One of the enemies who represents our flesh. Here's this noble tribe of Judah that is in, look what it says, bound by oath to Tobiah. Listen, if you're struggling with discouragement, Christian brother and sister, the first place you want to look is, have you made an oath and are you bound with your flesh again? Are you in partnership with sin? Are you running after the desires of the heart that are not holy? And are the impulses that are pulling you those of which the gospel's working to kill? That's the first place you look. When the fog of discouragement blows in, yes, you look and see, am I resting my body? Am I nearsighted on the rubble rather than the promise? But when it gets to the doubt stage, you begin to start examining, am I in league with the flesh? Is there unconfessed sin in my life that I need to deal with? Judah was bound to Tobiah and look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Can you flip back? There's no reason to be. Christian, this speaks to us. Tobiah had no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 20. But Judah gave allegiance to him anyways. You are dead to your sin. And yet we can run after sin and all of a sudden our flesh is in league again. 
We've been pulled out of the world so that we're aliens and strangers, yet we can live in the world in such a way as the love of the Father is not in us. We can say no because we're out of captivity to Satan, yet we can begin to work in such a way and live in such a way as Satan has power again. It's no wonder that the Messianic tribe of Judah was under attack. They were in league with Tobiah. And discouragement was beginning to settle in. But look at the next strategy. And it's a word that's archaic. You can substitute anxiety. The word I'm using is dread. I can tell you what dread feels like in this story from my father. My father served in World War II. He showed me a picture of this, by the way. It's unbelievable. You may remember hearing about this, or if you're old enough, you remember this. Maybe you served as well. The Germans had the earliest prototype, well, I'm not sure if it's the earliest, but they had an early prototype of the cruise missile called the V-1 Flying Bomb. They were nicknamed the Buzz Bombs. My father used to tell me about these. They would be walking, marching through the countryside, and all of a sudden you'd hear this loud buzzing. You can't see anything because they flew above the clouds, but you hear this loud buzzing But when you stopped hearing the loud buzzing, that's when the motor shut off in the missile and it began its dive and you never knew where it was going to land. He's got a picture of one of those buzz bombs nose down into the ground. It never exploded. He would describe to me the terror, the fright, the dread when you began to hear that buzz and you would hear them constantly going back and forth across the skies. So take that, now climb into verse 11. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. You know, dread is powerful. Anxiety is one of the products of our enemy. And listen, I know a lot of us struggle with it. You know what anxiety is, right? It is a form of fear, but it's always future fear. Anxiety is fear of the future. Anxiety always points to the future. They're not going to know until we come among them and kill them. It's that pervasive sense that something will happen and I'm powerless to stop it. And it begins to permeate into your soul and into your mind. And you constantly begin to look over your shoulder. And when you're looking over your shoulder, you're never going forward. How do you build a spiritual wall in your life when you're waiting for the enemy to attack? It's a propaganda campaign. Verse 11 is a terrorist group claiming responsibility before they even launch the deadly event. And that loss of security is debilitating. It's one of the strategies of our enemy, but there's another one to be seen this morning, and it's verse 12, distraction. Look what, it's, look what it says in the text. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. Now, these aren't the Jews of the tribe of Judah any longer. These are some of the other Jews. And these are the Jews that are living outside of Jerusalem, out in the territory of the enemies. Now, I want you to hear that. These are Jews that are living out near the enemy. They represent the people in the church that are living in the world. 
And now it becomes a time for us, an opportunity. Listen, this is what you do when somebody's preaching. It's what I have to do when I'm listening to preaching. You have to begin asking questions of yourself. You've got to take your squirrely heart, like I have, that wants to squirm out from underneath the uncomfortable sharpness of the gospel and begin pinning it to it and start asking yourself questions. Am I one of these people that live out in the world? All week I'm running after the world. All week I'm filling my life with the things of the world. Am I one of these Christians? Because if you are, now you're in the story. You're in the story. You're one of these Jews that are living near the enemy. And they keep coming back to Nehemiah. They keep coming back to the workers. And they're saying, listen, we're surrounded by hostile forces. You need to come back. Get your workers off the wall and come back and protect us. It's a Hebrew expression said to us 10 times. It means over and over and over. It was a common expression. Don't you find something ironic about this? Where should these Jews have been? They should have been on the wall. They should have been in Jerusalem rebuilding. God had called his people to rebuild the city. But they said, no, we don't want to rebuild the city. Our lives are comfortable right where we are, but we're not comfortable anymore because you're not protecting us. Even the best among us, as I sum these three strategies up, if we are in league with the flesh, we're going to spread discouragement. And second, Satan is going to roar out threats, dread. He's going to make us try to live in dread and fear. And thirdly, those of us, even the best of us who come every week, if we're immersed in the world, we're going to distract those who want to serve Christ. Now that's interesting to me. I mean, I love studying this. this is, I'm in this all week. Unfortunately, when I'm preaching, when I'm preparing a sermon... I'm in this all week. It's a mirror back to me. I'm having to answer these same questions you are. But what do you do when discouragement, dread, and distraction are pulling you off the wall? When your eyes are on the rubble, when you're beginning to doubt, you're exhausted, you don't know, why am I even trying anymore? What do you do? Well, let's look at the response of Nehemiah. We've already seen his response to criticism. Remember when he was being criticized, what did he do? He took it to God. He spread it out before him. It said, God, look what they're doing. They're criticizing us and our work. Really, they're criticizing you. You take care of it. I'm going to get off my knees and go back to work. And that's what he did. And then conspiracy came in. It began to escalate. What did he do? Now he took all the people, all the workers to prayer. And they got off their knees and they set a guard day and night around the clock. And all that confusion, you know what that, somebody asked me last night, I had somebody ask me after church, I've just got all this confusion in my mind, what do I do? I said, well, here's what you do, you do what Nehemiah did. You get on your knees and you start praying and let the Spirit of God dissipate the mist, let Him blow it away. Get in the Word of God, begin to pray through God's Word, that's what I did, it's what we did last Wednesday in our prayer service, you pray through the Word of God, don't pray just your own thoughts, they're going to be jumbled when you're confused. Get into a psalm and literally pray through the verses back to God. And watch that mist begin to walk away. But now that discouragement, dread and doubting is escalating, what is Nehemiah going to do? 
What's going to be the response? Can I remind you before we look at it, one little thing. You ready? Don't ever forget this in Nehemiah. You've got to hold this in your mind as you're reading through this book. Nehemiah is a type of Christ. He represents Christ. Yes, this is an historical book, but he represents Christ. What is Christ going to do when discouragement comes to us and our eyes are on the rubble? What's he going to do? Well, here we go. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Here's the first thing they do. They fortify. Look at that text. The lowest parts. You know what that was? Those are the parts. Those are the parts of the wall that were the lowest providing no protection. So he looks around the lowest parts of the walls and says, I'm targeting that, that's a vulnerability. And then the open spaces are the parts that the wall was so long and the watchtower so distant from one another that there was not the protection there. He targeted the open places, the places where there's, it's vulnerable, it's an opportunity for the enemy to attack. In short, what he does is he pulls people to live together, to work together. To protect the vulnerable gaps. So here's my question for all of us. And I've had to do this this week. Do you even know what the low places and the open places are in your life? Honestly, do you really know that? You're not going to figure it out on your own. Not according to Jeremiah 17, 9, because your heart like mine is deceptive, meaning it hides from you. So you do what Proverbs 20 says. You find a godly, wise friend that could go down in your heart and bring up for you what you cannot see. When's the last time you took your curtain of your heart and you parted it and you invited two or three trusted people and say, will you look inside? Tell me what you're seeing. Let me live transparently with you. Do you know what the open places and the lowest parts of your life are? That's where the enemy's coming. That's where he's targeting. And they're very good at this. They're very good. They're opportunists. They're exploiters. Maybe for you, it's when you're with certain people. Maybe you're with certain people and all of a sudden, even though you don't want to, your behavior changes. Maybe it's a particular part of your life that, that might be your speech. I had somebody tell me this last week. I can't seem to stop profanity. Maybe it's how you spend money. Are you in debt? Do you have a lot of credit card debt? And you know a lot of us do. That's suffocating. You can't give to support needy people. You can't give to support the church because you're so saddled in credit card debt. This is an open place in a low part of the wall. Are they getting through these enemies? Are they getting through your wall? Maybe it's in a wound that somebody inflicted years ago and you've never been able to shore that up. You've never been able to forgive and that bitterness and that resentment has put a gap in your wall and it comes through in hard-heartedness, comes through in distrust of God. Every little thing that now happens that hurts you gets tacked on to the wound before and now it mounts and it mounts until you're so bitter. Hebrews says a vine has come up, a root has come up that's defiling many. 
Maybe your vulnerability is that you've been hurt in your marriage and you're susceptible now to temptation with another person. I don't know what it is, but what is the lowest part of the wall in your life? What's the open place? That's where the enemy is coming. And if you want to fortify it, if you want to build that back up, Nehemiah says you've got to get people around you. And that's what he does is he reorganizes the workforce. You know, you might have a place in your wall that you've never let the enemy in. It's a stronghold. It's a strong place in your life. And you're so strong in it that you don't even guard it anymore. Well, listen to Gordon McDonald, who was a pastor who fell into sin and later wrote a book. He said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. You've got a strength in your life and you're not guarding it anymore. Listen, that's a double opportunity for our enemy. Nehemiah takes people. Here's, let's get nuts and bolts, ready? He takes people out of solo ministry. You've got somebody working on this part of the wall and you've got maybe two guys working on this part of the wall. He takes them out of solo ministry and he begins putting them in clans and families and teams because solo ministry has never worked in the kingdom of God, ever. That's why we have a team building philosophy in our church. If you want to, we're building teams by inviting people, equipping people, identifying leaders, trusting them to do the work and then honoring them. That's what we're trying to do as we build teams at Cornerstone. This is what Nehemiah did. This is how we've learned to do this. He says, you've got a vulnerability in your life, then you need people around you, people who love you, people who will work alongside you, ask you hard questions and promise to pray for you. Did you notice that he puts them in their clans? That's another word for families. Do you know why? Listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning but this, at least hold this because this one is frightening. The family has always been the first line of defense. If you get onto the internet and you type in there the importance of family and civilization, I will guarantee you're going to get hundreds of thousands of articles back because every single civilization that has ever eroded has eroded from within the family. Our enemy wants to destroy your family. He wants to erode your family. If he can begin destroying the family, he could destroy the, the civilization. This is how Rome went down the tubes. And so Nehemiah takes families and he begins to strengthen them. He begins to pull them together. And there's a principle in this. Families, listen, couples, married couples, if you can, serve in the church together. If it's possible, spend time on the wall together. And families, with your children, if it's possible, serve the Lord together. Find ministries that you can do together as a family. This is Nehemiah's strategy. If you've got open places, you've got lowest parts of the wall, pull together in your family. It's a strong family that makes a church strong. He not only fortifies them, but look what he does. He focuses them. Look as it goes on in verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Here's what he's doing. He first looks. I love this about Nehemiah. Is this you? Do you aim before you fire? Are you impulsive? I mean, aiming takes time. 
takes discipline. A lot of us don't like to do it. Do you aim before you fire? Nehemiah looks at the situation. Look what it says. And I arose and arose, meaning he was on his knees. He was in prayer. He gets out of prayer. And then he says to the nobles, he acts. You look, pray, and act. That's the focus of Nehemiah. And then he says to them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I love that word, remember. Don't forget this, which is a play on words. That was funny. Nobody's laughing. Remember means to call to mind. Well, Tim, that was earth shatteringly boring to know that. Well, here's why it's important. You call to mind the Lord. What is it about the Lord you call to mind? Well, the word Lord is Adonai. It's the name that means um, master or owner. This was the name that the Jews, and they still do it, this is the name that they would substitute because the word really means Yahweh, the sacred name of God, and they will not write it, so they substitute Adonai. Nehemiah is telling his discouraged people, your master, your owner, the one who has bought you, who brought you out of Egypt, the one that says about you that you're the apple of his eye, meaning you're the pupil over which his eyelids close to protect. You are his treasured possession. See, Adonai speaks and reminds you that you have a master and an owner in God who loves you. You are his. You really think? Nehemiah is saying that God's going to let these enemies hurt his treasured possession. Listen, if you are discouraged and if you are in dread and if you are distracted because criticism and conspiracy and confusion have been coming, listen, Nehemiah is saying, call on the Lord. Remember, he is your master. He is your owner. You are his treasured possession. And furthermore, remember that that owner and that master is great. You know what that word means? It means he outranks every other authority in his sovereign rule. And he is awesome, meaning he has absolute and overwhelming power. So Romans 8 comes alive. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? All right, your marriage is a mess. And your eyes are on the rubble. It's never going to change. How about bringing people around you that don't believe that? That believe God can do what he wants to do. And fortify you in your open places and your low parts of that wall. And remind you to look at your Lord, your Adonai, who is your master and your owner. Who is great and sovereign and powerful and awesome and power and might. He can do what he wants to do if he's for you. If he's for you, who could possibly be against you? And it will begin to move the confusion out of your mind. It'll begin to move the discouragement out of your heart. And when it does, you can go to the third response, and that is to fight. Look at what verse 14 says, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Listen, it's not an option to get in the fight. There's no sidelines in spiritual conflict. You can't get out of the game and sit on the sideline for a while to take a break. There's no reprieve. There's no truce. Our enemy will never surrender. He will never wave a white flag ever. If there is a lull in your spiritual battles, I can tell you right now, all it is is your enemy re-strategizing because the other strategies weren't working. That's all that's happening. They are relentless. We live in the horse gate. 
which is the gate of war. And you stand there with sword, spear, and bow. But listen to the wisdom of Nehemiah. Listen to the antidote for discouragement. It's as simple as what I'm about to give you an example of. I've had days like you have where I am just so discouraged in ministry and as a father, as a husband. I've had days like that. You've had them. And I'll be up in my office, which is upstairs. I'm in my office and I've got this fog, this blanket of despair all around me. Things I'm never going to change. I'm never going to get this right. Why do I even pastor? That one I'm still dealing with. That was a joke. Another little innuendo of humor. And then all of a sudden it comes time for my appointment, my next appointment where somebody's coming in and I'm counseling them. And listen, here's what always happens. Invariably, never, ever doesn't happen. I spend 60 minutes, 90 minutes now focused on them, now loving them, now serving them, now bringing God's truth to them, now praying for them. And now I get out of that, they leave my office and I sit down at my desk and I go, you know what? I feel a lot better. Why was I so upset earlier? I don't even remember. Man, I love ministry. I am my wife's gift. Okay, I don't quite get to that one. I don't get to that one. This is what happens when you take your eyes off yourself. When you're mired in discouragement, not only are your eyes on the rubble, they've come back to your situation. And you become north on your compass. And when you begin serving other people and loving other people, all of a sudden the needle begins to shift and your problems look a lot less and your hope looks a lot greater. This is every single time my counsel to people are struggling. Get serving somebody. And all of a sudden, that blanket of despair will begin to move out of your mind. And you'll be able to see that God can work in your life. Fight for your brothers, he says. Fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Does it say fight for your own protection? Put the compass needle on other people. Get moving and serving and fighting for others. And all of a sudden, that fog of discouragement is going to blow away. So here's what I'm going to ask you as we begin to close. Have your enemies, they're there, whether you see them or not. Have your enemies blown the mists of discouragement into you? Are your, is your life full of anxiety, future fear? They're trying to distract you from serving and being effective in the kingdom of God. And they're good at it. So what do you do? You stand with other people. You invite people into your life. You fortify your low places, your open parts. You get involved with your family of God, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you call to mind the faithfulness and the sovereign power and might of our God to clear away the rubble. Hasn't it ever dawned on you that God, with the very power of his word, could have rebuilt that wall? Why did he let the Jews do it? There's nothing supernatural in the entire book of Nehemiah. These are real people walking through real messy life, learning to trust their God while their enemies are attacking. And then you take out your sword, the word of God. You take out your weapons that Ephesians 6 says, and you get on the wall and you're ready to fight. And here's what's going to be the result. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes and the strategies of the devil. 
your enemy will try to take you down. And let me end with this. He's so good, he doesn't care about today. He's so patient, his plans today have their fruition 10 years from now. He's so smart that he knows you better than you know yourself. What do we have around us? We have our God, and we have the people of God, and it's enough. It always has been. Let's pray with that confidence. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for what we're seeing. Our enemy doesn't have millions of strategies. He's got a few that he puts millions of variations to. And Lord, if we can learn those basic strategies and have our eyes open and learn how to respond, we will get on the wall and we will build the kingdom of God to your glory and to your fame. Teach us how to do that. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.